You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part three of a series in Book Four of the Psalms. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's the end of Psalm 95. Now this psalm almost feels as if it has two halves, uh, verses 1 to the first part of verse 7 uh, are a call to praise God, to sing to him, to make a joyful noise to him. And then from the last part of verse 7 down to the end is a warning against not listening to the voice of God. And that might seem like those two things have been uh, put together without quite flowing and fitting together, but uh, it is, um, of course, important for us to look at the psalm as a whole and to understand why those two things do belong together. The first part of the psalm, if you like, is about how we speak to God. And the second part of the psalm is about how we listen to God or how God speaks to us and how we need to listen to him. Verses one to seven begin with this call, come let us sing to the Lord, make a joyful noise. Why should we sing to God? Well, he is, first one, the rock of our salvation. He's the one who has saved us, who is a firm rock on which to plant our feet, a trustworthy, solid, unchanging, reliable one. Uh, We have much to thank him for. We come into his presence with thanksgiving, with a joyful noise and a song of praise, verse 2 says. And it's not simply what he has done for us in saving us. He has saved us because of who he is. He is a rock. And as verse 3 says, he is a great God and king above all the gods, sovereign over all powers and authorities. He holds in his hand the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain. Verse 4, this is God who is sovereign over every aspect of this earth, of this world, from the highest point to the lowest point. The sea is his. He made it and his hands formed the dry land. We might think of Genesis 1 where God separates the the land from the waters and separates waters into different parts. But also for the Hebrew mind, the Old Testament Hebrew people, we're not a seafaring people. And so the sea is an image of often of chaos and of something fearful and uncertain. But God is sovereign over both the dry land, the certain part and over the sea in all of its seeming uncertainty and chaos. And so he is not only the maker of the earth, but he is our maker. Verse six says, the Lord Yahweh who makes, who made us, 
we should worship and bow down. And so far in these first six verses, the picture is of God, the king and God, the creator, the one who is worthy of praise and God, the saviour, the rock. But because God, who is the maker and the king, is our saviour, verse seven can say he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. In many ways, that phrase is the hinge between the first part of the psalm, which is about praising God, and the second part of the psalm, which is about listening to God. Because God did not simply save us so that we can wander around going our own way. He formed us into a flock, a people, of course, Israel, his people, God, the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 23, of course, most famously describes God not as the shepherd only of the whole nation, but as the shepherd of the individual, David, who wrote the psalm. Um, but it, but in that sense, by extension, God is the shepherd of all Israel, or rather, perhaps it's not by extension, but the other way around, because he is the shepherd of all Israel. Each Israelite can look to him as their shepherd. He is the God of his people. They are his flock. They are the people of his pasture. He provides what they need for food and sustenance and security. But of course, it's important that sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice. That's a, a mark of the true shepherd and a mark of the faithful sheep that they listen. And so the psalm says, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Listen to him. Now, these closing verses of the psalm are picked up in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, there's a, an extended quotation in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, where the writer says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, of course, recognising that the psalm was inspired and given by the Holy Spirit as a, an inspired scripture from God. Uh, it quotes that, that psalm in full. Uh, from Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 to 11 because this is the challenge for those who take the name of God who have been called by God to be his sheep are we listening to his voice don't harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness if you want to read about that Exodus chapter 17 is the place to go the first seven verses it says that the Israelite community was traveling through the desert as God had commanded and they camped at Rephidim and there was no water. So they quarreled with Moses. They demanded water to drink. And Moses chided them. He said, why are you quarreling with me and putting God to the test? But in their thirst, they grumbled and they complained that they had been brought out of Egypt. And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And God told him what to do. He said, go in front of the people with some of the elders, take the staff that's in your hand. I will stand before you by the rock and strike the rock and water will come out. So Moses did that. But the name that he gave to that place, uh, Exodus 17 verse 7 says, was Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. Massa means testing. And Meribah means quarrelling. Often places are named uh, in scripture with a name that carries significance about what God was doing in that place or what God's people were doing in that place. And so the psalm is echoing back to that time of grumbling, of quarrelling and of testing God. 
says, don't harden your hearts. Your fathers put me to the test. They put me to the proof, although they had seen my work. God had redeemed them marvellously out of Egypt through the plagues that passed judgment on the gods of Egypt. The Passover by which the Israelites were delivered from God's judgment and the Red Sea in which Pharaoh's army was drowned. They had seen these mighty works of God and yet they still tested God. They demanded that he provide what they thought they needed at the time when they thought they needed it rather than trusting him to provide what they really needed at the time when they really needed it. And so for 40 years, God says he loathed that generation, verse 10, and said there are people who go astray in their hearts, like sheep going astray, as Isaiah put it, all we like sheep have gone astray. And therefore God swore in his wrath that they wouldn't enter his rest. In his anger at their rebellion, that whole generation was forbidden from entering the promised land and they had to wander for 40 years in the desert until all of the adults who had come out of Egypt were dead and it was the next generation who entered into the land that God had given them. So this psalm brings together these two ideas of the call to praise God, to express our thanks and gratitude to him and the call to listen to God and not to harden our hearts. Now those two things are connected. We speak to God and we hear from God. But they're also connected in the sense that if we are going to avoid having hardened hearts, how will we do that? We will do that by giving praise to God and, and cultivating gratitude to God. When we are thankful to him, appreciative for what he has done, for who he is, understanding the glory that it is to have God our maker and God the great king over all things as our saviour, our rock, the shepherd of our souls, then that will preserve us from the bitterness, the hardness that rejects the word of God. We can't want to have God's protection and provision without being obedient to him. And in Hebrews 3, where that passage is quoted, the challenge is, is laid out to those people from a, a Jewish background in the New Testament that the, Hebrews is, the book of Hebrews is written to, people who were wavering as to whether to carry on and, and trust in Jesus, who were under oppression and opposition from other Jewish people for having left uh, the community of, of Israel, for having gone after Jesus and declared him as Messiah. Jesus says, make sure that none of you, verse 12, has a, an unbelieving, sinful heart that will lead you away. Exhort each other that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, he quotes uh, from Psalm 95. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who was it that heard and rebelled? It was all who left Egypt, led by Moses. With whom was he provoked? It was with those who sinned. And whom did he swear would not enter his rest? those who were disobedient. So the challenge is very clear that we must make sure we are truly believers, that we are not hardened in sin, that we are not un in unbelief. And there remains, chapter 4 of Hebrews says, a rest for God's people. He continues to work around the meaning of Psalm 95 and to show that the rest ultimately that God invites us into is a rest from our own labours for our own salvation, to rest in the work that Christ has accomplished for us. That was the problem for Israel. God had already delivered them 
he was leading them to the promised land, if they had followed him uh, and thanked him for what he had done, then he would have led them into that land as it was. That generation died and it was their children who came to enjoy the land of promise. So the challenge for us is this. Let us cultivate a thankful and a grateful heart. Let us not allow sin to get a, a grip on our heart. Let's not be grumblers against God, complainers against God. Let's cling to him. Let's look to him. Let's trust him and trust his timing. The rest of God is ultimately coming in the new creation, but at a spiritual level, that rest is already present. God invites you into his rest. So if you are a Christian, are you enjoying the rest of God? Or is your heart troubled and weary and burdened? Have you come to the Lord Jesus, as he said in Matthew 11, to find rest for your soul? Have you laid down your burdens or are you allowing yourself to be burdened again? by all sorts of false expectations, all sorts of complaints and negativity. If we cultivate a heart of thankfulness, we will not have a hard heart. Let's read the next psalm then, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That's the end of Psalm 96. What a beautiful song of praise, calling us to sing a new song, not just those who are God's people, but all the earth. This is the universal uh, vision of, of the worship of the Lord that runs through scripture like a, a bright thread. Yes, God calls the nation of Israel. And in the last psalm, we were looking at that, how they were led out of Egypt by him. And yet they grumbled and died in the wilderness because they didn't cultivate a thankful, grateful heart. But the Lord is great to be great and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. The worthless idols of the peoples, uh, that but God, the Lord Yahweh, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty. This is the universal glory of God. Not simply the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, but the God of all the earth, the true God. And it, it's a beautiful call because clearly the courts that are described in verse 8 and the offering, that's the temple worship that's in view coming into the temple courts 
giving glory to his name, bringing offerings to him as the law of Moses commanded. But it's an invitation to all the families of the peoples in verse 7 to bring their offering and to acknowledge the name of God, to worship him in the splendour of holiness. You might notice the footnotes say, or in holy attire. Uh, so that might be a reference to dressing in the way that was expected and required in the temple, in which case it may well be a picture of the, the dress and coat of, of the priests. There's a, a universal priesthood that's being envisioned here, which of course is a New Testament concept, isn't it? That not only the children or descendants of Aaron within the nation of Israel could be priests, but all of the people, and not only within Israel, but from all families of the earth, sharing in the blessing that God promised to Abraham. But whether that's the right translation, holy attire or not, uh, it could be that uh, verse 9 is really talking about the splendour of God's holiness. That's still a wonderful invitation to come into the holy presence of God, into his majesty, that's a place that normally only the priest can come to, the high priest behind the curtain in the most holy place. And yet the invitation is to come, for all of us to come into the presence of God. This is the God who invites us to worship him, who wants us to know him, who wants us to see his glory. And so the, the new song is the song of salvation. Telling of his salvation, verse 2 says, blessing his name. It's a song that is not simply a song of praise, but it, but it's a picture of, of evangelism to go into the world and to declare how wonderful God is, to declare to the nations that he reigns. This idea of the new song also props up in a couple of other Psalms and in the book of Isaiah and finally in the book of, of Revelation. And it's always to do with the nations joining in in the praise of God. The newness of this song is both because it is a song of salvation, coming to know God, but also because God's mercies are new every morning, as Lamentations describes it. So there is always something to praise God for each new day. The Lord reigns, verse 10. This is what we declare, that he has established the world and it shall never be moved. There is a constancy. There is a purpose. There is security in life. It's a declaration to people who look in all sorts of uncertain places for security, for hope, for purpose, for meaning. Increasingly in the Western culture today, looking inside themselves, trying to boost their own sense of self-esteem and self-confidence. But confidence and security is not to be found in those things, but in the Lord who has established the world, who reigns and who will judge and the judgment of God might sound like a scary idea. A couple of Psalms back, we had the God of vengeance in view. And yes, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, to fall on the wrong side of his wrath and his judgment, because he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Verse 13, not only judging Israel, but all the nations. But the psalmist doesn't see that as a source of fear, but a source of joy. As we saw when we looked at that psalm that talks about the God of vengeance, it is a good thing for God's people because they can only be vindicated, delivered, set free, established firmly, eternally, if God judges those who are their oppressors. So there is a cause for rejoicing here. 
a cause for gladness. It is a good thing that God reigns. It is a good thing that God is coming and he will come as judge. And of course, it's a good thing if you are one of the people who has come to know the new song of thankfulness for his salvation. That's the point. For those who are on the outside, on the wrong side of God's wrath, there is no need to remain there because this psalm invites the nations to come to God. It doesn't explain to us how we can do that. We who are Christians living this side of the cross, this side of the coming of the Lord Jesus, know that this is only possible through his death and resurrection. He opened up the way for us to come. The curtain that separated us from the most holy place was torn when Jesus died on the cross. He has opened up, as Hebrews describes it, a new and living way. And so we come, we come into his presence. We come with rejoicing. We come singing the new song. We come and we discover the delight and the joy of knowing that the Lord will come. Of course, this psalm was written thousands, well, hundreds rather, of years before the Lord Jesus came. And we know that the coming of the Lord when he came as a baby in Bethlehem was not to judge. He came rather to save, not to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved. But one day we know, as we look back on his first coming, that he has promised that he will come again. And when he comes again, he will come as judge. The heavens rejoice, the earth rejoices, the sea roars, the fields exult, the trees of the forest sing for joy, verses 11 to 12. And if all creation is singing for joy, that it has a king who will restore it, the creation that is groaning under the weight of sin and its consequences and the curse that God has put upon it, groaning as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8. It is longing for the day when it will be released from that bondage, which Romans 8 also says is the day when God's children will be revealed in glory. So let us now ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to his name, knowing that when he comes to judge, his people will be revealed in glory, sharing in the inheritance of Christ, we now can join our hearts and our voices with creation that declares and sings the glory of God. We know that he comes. There is joy to the world. I think these verses must surely have been in the mind of Isaac Watts when he wrote that famous hymn, Joy to the World, a hymn that we often sing at Christmas time, but really is it's too good to just be left to Christmas. Um, this may not have been the major psalm because as we'll see in the next couple of psalms uh, there are very similar ideas and particularly psalm 98 is the one that is closest to the lyrics of that song but um, but these ideas are there aren't they in the, the last verses of psalm 96 as well the lord will come to judge the earth in righteousness we can rejoice knowing that the lord reigns